What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Hey everyone, I'm Sean O'Connell, the managing editor at Cinema Blend and co-host of the Real Blend podcast, here to introduce a special episode of the show. We were able to start our Dune coverage with cinematographer Greg Frazier, who won the Oscar for Dune Part 1 and is returning to a collaboration with Denis Villeneuve for Dune Part 2. Uh, I want to point out that this is going to be the first of hopefully a lot of Dune interviews coming. We're turning uh, March into Dune Blend, and we're thrilled to kick everything off with Greg Fraser. I mean, just if you look at his credits over the years, clearly he would be somebody that Real Blend would, would die to spend some time with, uh, working with Matt Reeves on The Batman, collaborating uh, recently on Gareth Edwards, The Creator, uh, working on Zero Dark Thirty. And of course, the work that he's doing um, on behalf of the Dune franchise, winning his his first Academy Award. And I think it's, you know, putting the cart before the horse, but I would not be surprised if he's nominated for the work that he does here on Dune Part Two. This is a great conversation that we get. You know, yes, we get Greg for Dune Part Two, but we take the time to go over his entire career. Uh, tease a couple of things that he's working on and, and hoping to work on uh, in the future, but really just getting into the the nitty gritty of of working on a, a massive scale epic like Dune Part Two with arguably one of our most brilliant current filmmakers, Denis Villeneuve, uh, the type of insight that you want to get here on Real Blend. So without further ado, we are inching closer to the release of Dune Part Two, and this is our first interview with somebody associated with the cast or the crew. It is Greg Frazier joining the Real Blend podcast. <laughs> I've been camera testing all day. So like generally when I camera test, I'm kind of like, I'm literally pulling my hair out because I'm like, you know, I'm like, oh, trying to translate a vision of a script into a, into lenses, you know, into tangible lenses. So the fact that I actually have a decent hairstyle right now, I'm pretty proud of. Well, uh, well, first of all, I'm going to welcome you to our show. Greg, you and I have been speaking on Instagram for a few years now. Um, and this is kind of how this conversation got to our show with Real Blend. Um, but just to set a, a timestamp, because you talked about being uh, in, in, in production right now or pre-production, can you at least give us an idea of what you're doing without spoiling anything? I, 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 just to give our audience an idea of what you're doing right now. It's, a, it's an interesting question. And the funny thing was, is is that I've been trained in the ways of the Lucasfilm. You know, it's a bit of a... And, and, and my, my very good friends at Lucasfilm have trained me and my colleagues to literally we freeze up if somebody asks us a question like that oh. before. It's really funny. It's, and, I, and it's funny because when you asked me that, my, my, my stomach just went boom through the floor. I'm like, oh, my God, I have to talk about something. And, and that's due respect to the guys at Lucasfilm because they are so good at keeping um, keeping information under wraps. In fact, we should probably play the IMDb game with him a little bit later on. There's a there's a game where uh, there there's four tiles at the top of your IMDb page that represent yep. uh, the breadth of your work. And uh, if you haven't looked at your page recently, we could always play and find out fun. what your four are because they are never ever what you think they are. No, but you know the funny thing is, there's a film that. Apparently, I operated on um, that Adam Akapur was the DP, Kate Shortland, I think, was the director, and apparently I operated on, according to IMDb. But you did not. 
Oh. I did not operate it. And I've, <laughs> I've emailed them a number of times, not to get myself off the movie, because I loved the movie and I loved Adam. I loved, like, the director was all great. But I'm like, I didn't do that, guys. And <laughs> IMDb, IMDb also says that you were the cinematographer for the creator. And we know that, uh, that obviously that was your a protege of yours that actually went on to shoot that film, which is really cool. And are in software. So that's. A, you know. Yeah. Well, it was co. I mean, in fairness, it was co DP credit. So, uh, oh. you know, we, we did. I mean, we can get into that, but we did kind of um, Oren did a yeah, great job. He did definitely take over from me, but we did work hand in hand, hmm. um, well, you know, figuratively as the as the shoot went. Well, we'll definitely dive into that in our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us uh, for Dune Part 2. It's an honor to finally chat with you just vocally and Likewise. visually to see you. Um, I'm going to start off with this because we, we were lucky enough to have Denis on for the first Dune. And one of the first things we talked to him about was his narrative choices for the IMAX shots that we saw in Dune Part 1. And he had a, a great explanation about the reasoning for shooting in IMAX, the narrative jumps, why you jump, what's the reason from a storytelling perspective and Paul dreams we go to that giant one four three um so i wanted to talk to you about your conversations with denis from a narrative and storytelling perspective of when you decide these imac shots or non-imac shots and you know with that coupled to an aspect of that question is kind of the difference between part one and part two in those conversations yeah well you know listen effectively we were telling the story through paul you know paul was our eyes and our and our heart of that story particularly on june part one and so, you know, we experienced the world as Paul experienced that world. And, you know, for the longest time throughout Paul's, you know, lead up to him coming to Arrakis, that for him was kind of his his holy, holy place, the place where, you know, he dreamed of, the place that he kind of felt like he belonged. And so for us as an audience, we, we felt, I felt, Denis felt that we needed to really bogged down in, in, in Paul's world. And, and we made that choice because we love IMAX and we love the impact of IMAX and we love the impact of sitting in a theatre and being engrossed and being surrounded by the world that the filmmakers choose to, to present to us. And we thought what a great opportunity for us to, to, to really ram home to the audience that choice when Paul was experiencing Arrakis. And so for part one, yeah, exactly. It was kind of a real punch in the guts for the audience as much as it was for Paul to, to finally experience those things that he'd been, he'd been um, you know, dreaming of. And it was nature. You know, again, that goes back to Frank Herbert's kind of writing. Like it's a, it's a book about nature and biology and, you know, and, and, and so we really wanted to hammer that home. Part two... You know, part two was the thing where, well, we're in that world now. And again, we love IMAX. So, you know, you put those two worlds together and say, well, why don't we shoot this whole thing in IMAX? Because why wouldn't we? Like, why wouldn't we want to sort of submerge the audience into that world for that period of time? I mean, yeah, it's just divine. It's just divine. I mean, you know, I've seen the film more in IMAX than I have not in IMAX. And I'll tell you, it, it's, 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 glorious in that format. Greg, as a quick follow-up to that, um, what is the answer to why wouldn't you? Like if a filmmaker wants to shoot an IMAX, what are some of the obstacles? Is it just, is it the access to film to be able to shoot on the IMAX cameras? Is it the limitations of the cameras, especially when you're out in an environment like that? Yeah, this is digital I mean, though. 
Correct. We we shot uh, we shot June part one and part two digitally. So, mm. you know, to shoot in IMAX is a kind of what is that question? What is that answer? Like to shoot in IMAX, does it mean having shot on an IMAX camera? You know, do you have to have shot on an IMAX camera to be in IMAX? I personally don't know. I'm not a wise enough soul or a wise enough kind of you know person of to, to to be able to say to you, well, you have to have tick this box, this box, and this box mm. to have shot in IMAX. So that's that's a conversation maybe for the IMAX people. But I can tell you the way we approached it was we were trying to fulfill our desire to uh, increase the audience's perception of this world. You know, like we didn't want bars top and bottom. We wanted to, to, to create the biggest immersive experience that we possibly could with the theatres that exist right now. You know, like, if you said to us, you know, hey, June part three, but there are all these new spheres having gone up around the world. And, I mean, listen, I'd be the first one in the room saying to today, hey, uh, what do you think (laughs) about shooting for the sphere? I mean, what what an amazing experience that would be, right? Yeah. Dude, yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Dude, you got a DP for an Aronofsky film next time. That'd be, that'd be insane. You know, Greg, <laughs> Greg, I've always been curious about this as a follow-up as well. So if I, I have this right, I, Denise said that this film will go from the 190 to the 143. If you were able to see this film in 143, it'll, it'll basically be in 190, and then you'll have the scenes that jump to the 143 and back and forth. As a cinematographer, when you're dealing with that many formats, uh, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm also imagining, I'm imagining you do or do not have a 235 or 239 on this one, but I'm curious. So when you do that, you're dealing with more of the image. So your boom mics and all these different things that are in the image, I, I would imagine are different at different aspect ratios. Your one, four, three shots going to show more of the image from top to bottom than your widescreen shot or your one nine Oh, how do you account for that when you're filming, knowing that there's going to be multiple ratios that this is shown on? I mean, even just you talking about that has increased my level of anxiety like <laughs> 300 times because, because you're asking me a We're question. Sorry. That, that, We're sorry. <laughs> that about 57 times a day, depending on how many setups we had, was a question that we were asking ourselves about how to solve certain key problems. Now, I'm not, listen, I'm not going to lament and, and make you feel sorry for me because I had the best job in the world standing <laughs> on that set. Uh, next to Denis and alongside those actors. So, listen, it, of course my anxiety was high, but the thing is that was a good anxiety to try and make sure that every format that we were filming for was uh, properly properly recorded. So, yeah, you're right. It's not ideal. And I genuinely, genuinely wish there was one format that we were aiming for. But unfortunately the world exists right now where there are Four three one nine zero two four zero, like it exists, you know, and and so we have to be okay. We have to be very careful about framing. Um, Post production has to be very careful about making sure that 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 yeah, like you know, it's it's not a cheap option to to do a sandworm or that's out of the frame on some some deliverables. So it's not a, it's not a world that I am expert in. I effectively just tried to deliver the best images that I could in the formats that we we were working towards. Wow. That's insane. I don't know how you'd keep track of that. 
Um, Gregor, we're the type of show where our audience devours as much behind the scenes, you know, information as they can. The making ofs yeah. and, you know, yeah. they're grabbing the, the books to read behind the scenes. When we hear that Denis is doing Dune, you know, people love hearing the cast. We hear Greg Fraser and we're like, oh, oh my God. Yes, that's going to be amazing. Um, So I want to ask this because, as Kevin mentioned, you worked on The Batman with Matt Reeves, who we adore. And Matt used the ILM uh, stagecraft heavily uh, with that. Here, Denis is shooting in the actual desert. Um, Not that you have a preference, but can you talk about the pros and the cons of both? Uh, And at, at any point, did you turn to Denis and be like, Hey man, we've got this thing called the stagecraft. <laughs> Do you mind? <laughs> so it's a great question, and you know, like the, you know, the history of the, the the volume with the Mandalorian and and you know and and Rogue One. So for anybody that doesn't know, like you know, on, on Rogue One, we had a lot of spaceship work that we needed to do, and. You know, going back a number of years before that, gravity was done with LEDs to to create the lighting effect. Um, you know, uh, Oblivion had used kind of, you know, had built a, a projection screen. So you had some very clever DPs in the past having gone, hey, we can create an image that works for post-production mm-hmm. as well as for me to light a scene. And we reached a point on Rogue One where we were able to sort of get screens to go around the spaceships. And, you know, it was a bit of a new con- new concept, I say in inverted commas, because that Star Wars hadn't done it at that point and it hadn't really been done to that scale. So, you know, fast forward a few years, we got that in the can and we did, it looked quite great and we were all very excited about it. You know, and ILM talked to me along the way about doing a series in the same way and, you know, 3D technology developed so that we're able to sort of build the worlds in 3D and, you know, and so therefore the Mandalorian was born. And, you know, that was a really tough show to do because we effectively built the systems to shoot drama on an LED screen that is designed for a display for concerts and stuff. And so at that time, um, I was also talking to Matt about doing the Batman, you know, Matt, you know how it is. Directors kind of negotiate with studios and they're able to do it. Then they, you know, they talk about things and, you know, I was spitballing with Matt. I'd catch up with Matt every couple of weeks. We'd have lunch and, you know, you know, he talked to me about doing the Batman and I was like, oh, cool. Like, you know, like what am I, if Batman does this or it's that type of Batman or, you know, we, we had a great old time talking about what the Batman was. And, you know, I was saying, hey, dude, by the way, there's this thing called uh, the, the volume that we're building on, on Mando, um, which you really should think about. And here is where it looks good. It looks good for, it, it's great for long scenes where you need, consistent light over a long period of time where you don't want to chase the sun, you don't want to chase the sunset, you don't want to be dealing with sound problems. Like, you know, and I gave him basically the rundown of all the pros and all the cons of what the volume is good for. And so that's why he wrote, while he's writing the script, these scenes that played really well into the the positives of of the volume, you know, mm-hmm. and because they were long scenes. Like some of those scenes were... Maybe ten pages, you know, like there was. I think there was ten plus pages on the on the volume between, you know, Batman and and Zoe, Rob and Zoe, and, and you know Jeffrey and Rob, and like there was a lot of scenes there, and so it, it works for a lot of environments like that. Now, one thing it doesn't do so well 
it's kind of dead space. You know, you need it because it's surrounding by electronics. You've got to really create atmosphere in okay. those spaces. It doesn't deal, LED technology doesn't deal with rain very well, which is why there's only one scene on the volume with rain, and that's the beginning of the movie when Gordon's looking out. And that patch of rain was so small it never hit the LEDs because obviously water and those LEDs don't really oh, mix. Oh, wow. Right? That's awesome. That's I never even cool. thought that. That's so cool, man. That's awesome. <laughs> but, but the same thing also applies with, with, with sand. Like the last thing you want in your LED panels is sand. Sure. Like, you know, so those LED panels aren't really designed for the type of atmospherics that we wanted to do on, on Dune. You know, Dune is a, is a very, very interactive film when it comes to sand, wind, dust, environment. You, you know, like it's as much of a character as, as anything, you know, sure. like to create yeah. that kind of, that, 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 that inhospitality. Inhospi inhospi no, you can, <laughs> yeah. inhospitable. To create that sort of feeling, it requires a lot of stuff that LEDs don't like. So it, it, it wasn't really, we talked about it, of course. Mm. You know, I, I showed Denise some examples of what I could show of him, uh, of, the, of the, and I was like, it just doesn't, it didn't, it didn't suit that story and that film or those two films at that point in time. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, if and when Denise and I ever work together again, that we don't use the technology. Sure. It just means we have to figure out when it's the right time to use it. Uh, totally. Thank you very much. You know, that's all. Oh, that's so fascinating. Greg, uh, one of the things I find interesting is your relationship to your image set to score when you finally see the film. Um, yeah. Because at the end of the day, like you have some of the greatest composers in the history of movies scoring the images that you are shooting. Um, and I find that so fascinating. So I'm just wondering, like emotionally, when you sit through Dune or or any film that you shoot, when you hear the music set to the imagery, what that feels like. And can you specifically talk about maybe hearing Zimmer's score set to your images in the first one and uh, or even yeah. now with the second one? I can. I mean, one of the benefits of, of doing part two is that as we were prepping part two, I was listening to the soundtrack of part one. So, mm -hmm. you know, you read the script of part two, listening to the soundtrack of part one, it's like the perfect, it's the perfect situation where, you know, it's like the, 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 you know, the composers scored part two before you've even made it. So Zimmer is a, is a legend, as we know, for, for good reason, because he, he, his music is emotive. He, he responds to the drama, he responds to the, the script and he responds to the images. And it's so clear to me when he, when he does that, how he does that. I, I mean, in fact, I don't know how he does that, but it's so clear that he does. You know, he's just not writing catchy tunes. He's writing songs that, that evoke something. And one of the things I love about cinema, you know, I used to be a stills photographer and sometimes do still do stills. Like I, I did that stills book with Josh that, you know, Denis asked me to shoot those stills. And I love doing that. But you know what I love about cinema is that, that, that I can create images that by themselves, yeah, you turn the sound down and sure, you might go, oh, that's a pretty picture. You know, you might turn the image off and you might go, oh, this sound feels really emotive. You might hear the drama and then, but together they just create something that's, it's really intangible. It's something that creates more of a, I don't know, like an, a, a really deep seated emotional state. And so, you know, when, I'll tell you on, on part two, um, you know, I generally grade the movie silently because 
I don't want to be, I, I don't want to, 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 to grade the images responding emotionally to how it sounds. Because I, I mean, is that normal? Is that normal? Is that normal? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You should ask other DPs. I don't know. Is there a normal? <laughs> I, I don't know. Wow. I mean, I, I haven't read the handbook about how you do it, so I don't know. <laughs> I, I just, but, I, I never thought about that before. Grading it silently. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes I've, I also grade in black and white just to get the contrast, right? And then I add the color back in. But that's a, that's a different discussion. But in this case, I graded the film silently. And, you know, the film is fantastic with no sounds, you know. But then I watched it with sound and I was... I, I mean, I was tearing because this this emotion, the, the sound, the sound, um, the sound effects guys, uh, Hans, the Joe, the editor, you know, it was just all too much. It, it got all too much, and so yeah, my, my relationship with the sound is is something that I I think I need. To, the reason why I do it silently is because I need to cut out s- some of those kind of distractions. You know what I mean? Like if you're doing work and you're technically trying to match that to that to that to that to that, some of those things can become emotionally distracting. Um, mm. So then you turn the music on and hopefully it it does what you need it to do. It sort of fulfills that emotional journey, which for me it did. I mean, the first time I saw it with sounds, I was like, oh, this is incredible. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. Greg, behind the scenes, were you guys treating them like Dune 1 and 2, or did you think of them as one big movie? Did you work work on any of two while you were all together for one or what was this? How did that work out? We talked, we talked about it. I mean, we talked about what, cause obviously the story is bigger than part one, isn't it? The story is part yeah. two and no one would ever um, be confident enough or arrogant enough to assume that there was ever going to be a chance to do a part two. I mean, I, I didn't. And, and I, Denis, cause he's, as you know, super humble and he would never be like, okay, well, when we're doing part two, it was more like, let's make this film the best that we can. Mm. And and do the best job that we can, and hopefully it does well, or hopefully we're happy with it more than it does well. I think that was more the that was more the discussion. Hopefully we're happy with it. Um, we you know we did talk about things again. You know, like the the process obviously is a little bit um, complicated in, in in what the first script came in and what scenes were there, what was cut, what was moved, what was changed. Like that's a probably a conversation to be had with, with Denis more than me. Mm. But we did discuss some of the overriding concepts of part two. 
um, in part one because you have to. Like you've got to know part of Jessica's journey. Like you've got to know kind of where she's going. Like, you know, that, that incredible look. It's the last shot of Rebecca in part one. I think it might be the last, it's probably the third last shot of the movie of, of Rebecca watching of Timothy walk away. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you, you kind of had to have an idea, I did anyway, of possibly what was going through her brain mm-hmm. in order to properly record that. You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that was sure. a really pivotal moment for her character going, right, start, this is the start of the journey, mate. But she yeah. understood what was going on. She understood that connection and she understood what was going to happen. And so for me, it was really important to understand what was going to happen later. Um, I didn't know, need to know everything, but mm. there were some things that we did discuss. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, Greg, one thing I find interesting about, the, about your job specifically, and I, and I want our audience to understand what you do, because I think at the end of the day, one thing that Dune does really well, both part one and part two, is it blends CGI and practical seamlessly i think even nolan pointed that out it's like one of the greatest combinations of cg and practical that i've ever seen like going back to like jurassic park i think about how brilliant that was at the time and you think about the marrying of those things and so i want to talk to you if you could walk us through a sequence i'll use the the sandworm the sequence where paul rides the sandworm um and which is obviously a huge part of the film it's in the trailer as well Obviously, that's a shot that's dealing with certain elements of practical elements and certain elements of CG, clearly, because you're dealing with a worm yeah. that big. Um, yeah. So could you walk us through how you approach to shoot something like that, like what your conversations are like with Denis, and then your yeah. lighting in a scene like that, knowing that there's going to be CG involved? How, I, I'm just curious how that all works. Yeah, it's it's again, it's one of those things where you read it in a script and you go, oh, Interesting, because <laughs> normally your brain goes like, okay, you, you read it as a story and you go, wow, cool story. I love this, all the characters. And then you read it again and go, how, how, how are we going to do this? This is the, the technical part of the brain kicks in and you have to start talking about it technically. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that perhaps people listen to this way after they've seen that sequence. I know it's been sure. released, in, but, I, but I desperately hope people get to see that on the biggest screen that they possibly can. So Sure. Uh, listen, when I've when every time I've seen it, and I've seen it on some of the biggest screens in the world, I've just been enveloped. So that's a good sign because I know how every single shot was done. Okay. And and when you read that, you kind of go, "All right, well, how do we do this?" And you, your brain goes to 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 okay, let's find something as a point of reference to how we can how we can do this, or that we can say, "Hey, this is kind of like that," or "This is like this," like. It, you know, most scenes that you do in movies have some rhyme on some other movie over the last hundred years. You could find a, a point of reference. I, I, we couldn't find a point of reference for this thing. Like there was mm-hmm. nothing that I've can point to that I've heard that I've that I can imagine that that points to this scene as a as point of reference. So, you know, Dean Denis Denis had this so well. Uh, figured out in his head in terms of the technicals, you know, about how he rides this thing, how he gets on this thing, how he falls, how he grabs, how he steers, how he stops it from going under the sand. Like, Denis, uh, you know, I know you've probably spoken to him a little bit about some of this stuff, and he has spoken a bit about it, but he, he has ridden a sand one himself in his mind before, mm-hmm. he, before he told us. And he was, like, telling us how you ride a sandworm. 
And we're like, oh, that's cool. Oh, yeah, why doesn't it go under? Well, it goes under, doesn't go under because the sandworm doesn't want to get sand in its organs. So therefore you expose its organs. It, it doesn't want to go under the sand so it stays upright. Like, how do you steer? Well, you steer by pulling on that. Like, he knows exactly how to ride it. So you need to kind of maybe get instructions from that. <laughs> uh, but so how, how, we, how, we, how we shot it was something where, again, the next step for that was technically how do we do it? And it, you know what it comes down to? It comes down to authenticity as much as possible. And, you know, every step of the way, obviously we couldn't get a real sandworm and we couldn't, you know, move something at 100 miles an hour in the desert. So we had to figure out the next best option. And that was natural light, natural camera positions, camera positions that didn't feel unnatural and unreal. Um, that felt like you could really have shot this if you had, you know, a, a helicopter, a handheld camera, a, you know, another sandworm even like we even went, well, it's another sandworm. We could put a camera on another sandworm <laughs> with a thousand mil lens. And, you know, like we even were thinking like, how do we shoot this? We'll shoot this on another sandworm. So in our mind, all of the shot ideas consisted of something based on authenticity as much yeah. as we could. Um, and then we just spent a long time doing it. We spent, we spent months shooting that sequence. And the reason was is because we were meticulous about every single one of those shots and we, you know, if something didn't quite work and the sun had gone down and, well, we had to do it again or we had to get the, the movement right or, you know, it was really, it was meticulous and, and, and quite exacting, more exacting than almost any other sequence that I think I've shot. I mean, the only other sequence that I can point to as being that exacting was the, was the Batmobile chase on, in Batmobile, in, in Batman. You know, that was exacting as well, but for very different reasons. Wow. I Another magnificent song. God, man, that's just the upside down shot scene. when he's walking is one of the coolest shots I've ever seen, man. That, that <laughs> shot is incredible. God. Thank you. Yeah. It's a, it's, it was such a fun sequence to do. We had a great team working with that, doing that with us and for us and in collaboration with us. And, you know, Matt was all over that that as well. So, Oof. yeah, no, it was, it was great. It was, it, to, to me, that exacting is exciting. Greg, when you um, work with Andrew Dominic uh, on Killing Them Softly, how many Jesse James questions do you allow yourself before you I have to be, to, ca uh, I had to be careful? Side. Because the problem is, is that uh, can I tell you another story? I mean, yes, I, I didn't have it. I didn't have a limit. I just asked him, and the same thing applied with with Roger. You know, I had dinner with Roger Deakins, who yeah. you know we know is the master, sure. and yeah, I was fanboying like all night about you know, the, the shot with the moving light and the, and the, and the silhouette shot of it. I mean, oh my God, like, yeah. you know, that, that's a, that's a, it's a film that you can just like, you know, watch so many times. But, but the funny thing was I did the same thing with Denis on, on part two. Normally when I'm making a film, I don't watch other films because it, for me, it, it just clouds my judgment the next day. It's like, it just, it just, I sh don't do it. But on part two, I found myself watching Sicario and, mm. you know, I was watching Sicario kind of quite consistently, almost as my comfort movie, which is a weird comfort movie, right? That's weird. <laughs> yes, that's weird. <laughs> that's a really disturbing comfort movie. <laughs> I, I know. And the funny thing was, and, I, and I, I'm like, that, that maybe says a lot about my headspace or, or not, or maybe not, but, 
the 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 fact that I you know I can one of my favorite scenes in that movie is the scene where Del Toro uh, interrogates the the guy in the in the room and Josh is on the table and no has no have no español like that's one of my favorite scenes and that was yeah. one of my comfort scenes which is not a comfortable scene at all but it's so beautifully told visually dramatically writing wise like every decision that was made. Uh, all along the way is perfect, and, and I, anyway, that's so. I, I was I was fanboying on Denis a little bit <laughs> in part two, and I think, <laughs> which is a bit weird. It's a bit weird because I try and stay cool, man. And I, sometimes I lose it, and I'm like, it's I'm impossible. Hey, yeah, we're, it's impossible. We're, we're professionals who geek out. That's all. That's all <laughs> we do is geek out, dude. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I want to go back early in your career. Um, and I want to ask you, do you remember the first moment you shot something and saw the result and said, I can do this. And mm-hmm. I, I, I could, this could be early in your childhood. This could be when, at any point, do you remember the first image that you remember shooting that was, that was, that had that feeling for you? You know, it, not, mm, no, not really. Because I think, I think what's happened over the course of a career, my career, is that slowly, slowly but surely, I've become more confident with choices, my choices, and more comfortable listening to my my, my instinct and my inner voice and, and and those things. And there's an element of of my job that there's there's a there's a big technical element and there's a big creative element, and there's a massive overlap between those two. You've got to make choices about, you know, about lights, about what type of lights, you know, like what size fixture, how much wattage does it draw and how much is going to give you the stop for the film that you've got. Like there's a whole heap of technical, boring things that you've got to solve before you can even turn a light on, before you can even, you know, move a camera or or choose a lens. And like trying to mix those two together was always the tricky part for me is trying to make the right choice when it comes to lenses, not because it was right on paper or because it's right in my head, but because it felt right internally. So I I don't, I don't know if there ever, ever has been a a point where I can go, Oh yeah, I got this. I meant like earlier in your career, like, did you ever have a moment like where you shot something that you were like, oh, this is what I want to do with my life? That, that's kind of what I was getting at. Oh. Like, was there like, like you're the first image that you remember going, oh, wow, I, I this is something I'm really interested in or I, I can do this for a living. I, I think I think that I think it would have been when I was studying photography back when I was younger. Like, I remember kind of not being great at a lot of things at school, but but I kind of really enjoyed photography. And I kind of enjoyed creating images and that, that buzz of, you know, of getting a contact sheet and, and, and finding an image that you've shot that's really quite good. I think it was high school and it was stills. It wasn't, it wasn't motion. Hmm. Interesting. Well, then I'll take you to the opposite end of that spectrum, Greg, um, because for many, the Oscar win, you know, starts to open doors yeah. For you, for you, doors were open. You're you're working with some of the masters, you know. So what did that? What was your reaction to that night and 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 the work immediately after uh, that you became Oscar winner, Greg Fraser? Yeah, that's a great thing because you can never kind of take that away, can you? I mean, well, I no. don't think so. Well, hopefully not. I think you can take a Grammy. Away. <laughs> I think you can take a Grammy away, but maybe not an Oscar. I don't know. <laughs> but but it it. it 
I mean, ultimately, I saw that as me supporting the movie that I was really proud of. So whatever the award was, it could have been the Who's Me, What's It awards, but it was me, like, supporting the work of my collaborators, my, my, my director, you know, my, my designer, like all those, all those things. Like for me, that was a kind of a, uh, the most important thing about that was the support of that. And so for me, the win hopefully validates other people's work as much as it validates my work. That's what's great about filmmaking. Like doesn't happen in a vacuum. Anybody that wins an award and they'll get up there and say it, it's, it's not about themselves. It's really about their team. It's about their support whether it's the family or their director or their, like it's a, the, 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 the person accepting that gold trophy is the, is the, is the smallest part of the biggest equation. So for me, what was exciting about that was hopefully what it did validation wise for Denis, because if you recall, Denis, I don't think was um, nominated that year. So, you know, the film was, but I think, don't think Denis was, which, you know, I always find astounding because, you know, I mean, we don't get he, he that. directed the cinematography, so the, the design, the editing, the, the VFX, like all those wins. He yeah. was the director of that. And so, you know, if, if my win can help validate his role on that as, the, as a master director, then that's what I got the most out of for, that, for that, that year. Greg, speaking of validating other parts of the, the filmmaking process, um, one thing I love about your relationship with Josh Brolin is – you know, Brolin obviously is an actor that a lot of people know. And then for him to work on a book with you and kind of like the idea of like him being really kind of connected to the cinematography process, but also understanding the whole idea of movie making. I just love your relationship and I love the book. It's called Exposures. People should definitely check it out. It's a beautiful, beautiful book with incredible images from Greg, but also beautiful written poetry by Josh. And it's just cool. For me, it was cool to see an actor and a cinematographer team up. I feel like I feel like yeah. it should happen more often. And I think a lot of people don't realize that every, every single one of these departments, they're all connected and they all help each other in so many different ways. But can you talk about your relationship with Josh and kind of how that came about um, and the idea of kind of putting this out with him and kind of what it means to yeah. you to have, you know, this it's a, it's a really cool thing because I feel like. I feel like there's a lot of jobs in filmmaking that not everybody talks about in the mainstream media. And I just want, I'm wondering what it means for you to kind of work on a book with someone like an actor like Josh Brolin. So one of the, one of the interesting parts about my job, one of the parts that I love about my job more than anything is that at the end of the shoot, I kind of wave goodbye and say goodbye to everyone, give everyone a hug and I, and I go and I either move on to something else or I, you know, go and spend time not on the project that I've just finished. Mm. So, you know, and for me, that suits me perfectly because I, I love that time. I put as much effort as I can into that time and then I leave. Um, Denis had asked me at the beginning of June part one because he'd seen some of my images that I was shooting, you know, just for fun, really. And he said, well, why don't you shoot some stills and like this? And I said, I don't really think that's a good idea because I'm about to shoot one of the biggest films I've ever shot and I'm really nervous about it. And I want to, I want to hit this thing out of the park. You know, like I want to hit this film out of the park and I don't know if that's going to be distracting or I don't know. I've never done that. And so he said, okay, fine. Totally understand. I said, but I'll, I'll do some stuff, but I'll, there's going to be no, no end result for it. I don't have to publish. I don't have to, it's not for PR. It's, I said, maybe I'll give you a copy for your nightstand, whatever it might be. If there's a good (laughs) shot. And he agreed to that. But along the way, I was getting some shots that I thought were kind of interesting. Now, Josh is a great lover of photography and 
He's also, as you know, an incredible writer of which I discovered as we were working together. And I was showing him some images just, you know, on the side. I mean, like between takes or whatever. I wasn't, you know, we weren't in a corner huddling, working on a book. You know, it was literally just like, hey, in my phone, what do you think? And, um, and he started getting really excited and he started writing some things and, you know, it, it was really organic process where, you know, I get a bit focused when I shoot too. I will say that like, it's, it's, you know, that's the film I'm doing. I wasn't working on the book as we were making the, as we were making the movie, but slowly, but surely like we were developing this kind of relationship, words, images, mm-hmm. and then the film finished. We all waved goodbye. There was nothing kind of discussed. Um, and during COVID, we had a bit of time on our hands. And it's like, hey, you know, Tanya had a great idea of putting this together for a special edition for her, for the for the um, art and soul of June. And we thought, what a great idea. So we worked on something during COVID. And it was a great collaboration. I, I, I got so much out of it because I love reading what Josh writes. He oh. sends me stuff, you know, every couple of weeks just as a as a riff. And I'm like... For me, it's like, it's joy. It's joy just to listen to, to his, his words. And so, yeah, we, we did that. It was a great experience. And, but the, the great thing was too, what I learned, I learned about how to focus on the film even more intensely and mm-hmm. shoot it. I think, I think June Part 2 is, is, is the best film I've ever shot. I think it's the most focused I've ever been. I think it's the most kind of um, focused my cinematography has ever been. And I think the stills helped that. And I think that the relationship with Josh afterwards also helped that. So I think it was all good. It was all great. It's an amazing book. Everybody, everybody watching this, definitely check it out. Like there's just passages of writing and images that are just breathtaking. Yeah. So clearly we're excited for our audience members to see Dune part two. It's yeah. one of the most anticipated films that we have. Um, we'd be, I, I would be remiss if I didn't get you out of here um, on this question you shot what is, without question, one of the most remarkable Star Wars sequences ever, which is the Vader scene, the hallway scene oh, from from God. Rogue One. Uh, did you ever get to go out to a theater and and experience a fan, like a, an audience of fans, witnessing that for the first time? I did. You know, I did. Um, <laughs> Gareth and I, and Diego, I think we all hung out on the first night that it came out. We all were were hopping uh, around the, the, the theatres, standing at the back and just watching the experience. I think we introduced a couple um, and then ones that we went in late and just watched. And uh, I, I did, and it was a really interesting experience. And, and I, I, I've recounted this story a number of times because when we shot that, because, you know, as you know, with, with that film, there was a number of pickups here and there, which there should be with, with any film that's trying to find its feet like that. There needs to be sure. kind of... Um, refinements to scenes it needs to be all those things which there was um, but that was a super late addition to the film and mm-hmm. I remember the sequence we'd shot before that was really good before that even existed in the world was really good and I'm not going to talk too much about it because it doesn't matter actually it's gone and I remember I think Gareth rang me and said hey we've got this sequence and it's, it's going to end the film and I went oh that means what we've done is gone right and, okay. and that's a sh- such a shame. They went, yeah, yeah, but 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 hear me out. This is going to be much better. And so I heard him out, and I went, yeah, baby, that is going to be much better. <laughs> and, and so <laughs> this is the point where I remember going, like, you know, I'll happily admit 
defeat or happily admit that I'm wrong. Um, and I remember my first reaction was 100% wrong because when we finally got the, 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 the lighting right, that introduction to Vader, because remember, like when he lights a, a lightsaber in front of him, that should front light him because that's what lightsabers do. Sure. But if you watch carefully, it, he's silhouetted. It's a total it's false. It's total false lighting. It's like lightsaber comes on and then there's a light behind him. I don't want to dest- destroy it for the for the for the people at home. But only a cinematographer would <laughs> complain. The lighting about that. is the lighting is wrong as wrong can be. It's false and wrong. But I remember we we, we did it the correct way first, and we just went. Ugh. Like it was like a like a like a balloon deflating. <laughs> and believe it or not, believe it or not, Vader can look a little bit weak if you don't shoot him correctly. Okay, and we you know we shot him we shot him obviously for the film before that, and we discovered that, but we'd never done the whole reveal before. And so you know when we first did the reveal on on set, it was like oh this is not good. Oh this is not. This is not what this film deserves. And I remember we worked on it for like 10 or 15 minutes and got the levels right. And then we shot, and I remember the first take that we did it and it worked. We were both like, oh, it was like being five again. Like it was like being five and seeing Vader for the first time in A New Hope, you know, when he comes in through the smoke and the, yeah. that's how it felt. And yes, and I'm very happy to have experienced that first time. Ah, I wow. love that. Thank you for sharing that. As Sean mentioned, you are part of shooting some of the greatest moments in our generation and our history of cinema. Um, what, in, off the top of your head, it's going to be a hard question to answer. What is your favorite shot of all time? You can give a couple if you want, but like shots that yeah. you, yeah, because just because you you are someone that we think shoots some of the greatest shots. So, what are your favorite shots? I I, I think that. One of the most beautiful sequences put to film is the 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 is the first ten minutes of Magnolia by Paul Thomas Anderson. Wow! You know, I, I think nice. that's one of the most like amazing introduction of characters and voiceover. Like I, I get goose pimples even thinking about that. You know, <laughs> what I mean that se- that sequence and and the way that camera moves. I remember when I was studying cinematography and studying film because remember I I was um a stills photographer and cameras don't move in stills. So I was studying how cameras move and what impact they can have emotionally. And I studied that, you know, ad nauseum. I, I could almost recount every single shot and the beats and all that stuff. Wow. And that to me is one of, again, I think it hit me at the right time during my development of, of filmmaking, you know? Um, I mean, of course there's, there's tons of stuff in empire that we can talk about and, and all that. But I think for me, during my development and my understanding of what film does emotionally and what the camera can do emotionally and what lighting can do emotionally, that kind of hit me at the right time. I mean, I, I love I love the film Ratcatcher as well, the Lynn Ramsey film, and that yeah. also hit me at the right time because it, it was a film with a lot of still frames but with fantastic acting, so... Wow. Yeah, God. it's a, it's a good question. I should, know, I, should know, I should know more than that, but, you know, like, I don't know. My mind is like... There's about a thousand, you know, images that I can kind of point to. But yeah. Well, wow. we just want to say thank you for taking the time. Um, also, just shout out to, you know, to you for making the time to do this. I mean, Greg's been someone I've been messaging on Instagram and 
I'm so glad we got to make this happen. And uh, and we appreciate everything you do for cinema. It's it, We're not just saying that because we have you on. Like, it's just a pleasure to break down filmmaking with you. And it's just nice to hear your thoughts because you're passionate, obviously. And it's just nice to see that passion come through because it comes through your work. So we really appreciate you, Greg. Yeah. Awesome chatting to, to, to people who are fans about films. You know what I mean? Like, that's where I get excited. So thank you. Awesome. Awesome chat. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. We want to thank Greg Frazier for joining the show. Really special to have him on. He's somebody we've been efforting to get for a while. Great to be able to get him for a film like Dune Part 2, which we're going to be talking about a ton on the show. All three of us, tremendous fans of the movie and uh, and are anticipating having some really exciting interviews in the coming weeks. So because of that, you want to, you're going to want to hit subscribe while you're here on our YouTube channel. Turn on your notifications. Tons more Dune Part 2 coverage coming uh, and get yourselves out to the theaters. Try to see this film in IMAX. See it on the biggest screen possible. We're going to be talking about it uh, for weeks, months and probably the duration of the year because the movie is that special. Uh, keep it here at Real Blend. We'll be back with some new episodes very soon. And, uh, you know, for the immediate future, they're going to be focused on this massive film that's coming to theaters very, very soon.